Welcome to this podcast on digital responsibility. There's a vibrant community across the world at the moment driving forward corporate digital responsibility, which includes a range of aspects from digital ethics, digital for the environment, sustainability, digital well-being, inclusion, accessibility, and more. My name is Rob Price, one of the founders of Corporate Digital Responsibility back in 2017. If you'd like to know more, have a look at the website corporatedigitalresponsibility.net. Welcome to episode seven of the second series of the Digital Responsibility Podcast. And tonight I'm delighted to be joined by Robbie Stamp. Um, And we're going to talk about all things um, AI, um, but with some interesting twists on it. So Robbie, would you like to introduce yourself and and, and kick off the conversation? Thank you. And thank you very much for for inviting me on. Um, So yes, my name is Robbie Stamp. Um, I uh, run a company called BIOS, which has always been interested in the nature of human judgment and decision-making, how we make sense of our world. Uh, And therefore, I got very interested in starting to think about the relationship between human sense-making and what I could see as the emerging ontology of AI and data. Uh, I also was very privileged way back to work with the late, great Douglas Adams, the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And uh, we talked a long time ago now, um, because he died 20 years ago, um, about a lot of issues in relation to perspective in particular. And I think that's a theme that I hope we're going to explore today is Douglas's genius, I think, was exploring perspective through all of the Hitchhiker books, through Last Chance to See, which was maybe his favourite, Dirt Gently, and a lot to what he wrote about subsequently. And, and of course, when we spoke previously, we talked about some of those. Um, I, I, I'm looking at my bookshelf indeed uh, now and can see all of the books that, that you've just mentioned. They were huge favourites of mine, um, as indeed kind of was the TV series and, and, and the films. Um, it's interesting, actually, kind of even considering that, that not only are we talking about AI, but you've mentioned um, Last Chance to See and, and the environmental impact of digital technology or addressing the environmental impacts that we've seen over the last uh, few decades is something that very firmly is part of the corporate digital responsibility um, space as well. So so, so maybe we'll explore a bit of both. Indeed, I think some of your early filmmaking was uh, in the uh, area of kind of climate change impact and the impact on the environment as well, wasn't it? Yes, before I before I met Douglas, in fact, probably it was the, in, in a way it was the reason I had met Douglas is that I, I was making environmental and history documentaries, but the environmental ones we're talking about today. And I, I was a producer with a, with a colleague, a much more experienced senior colleague than I was at that stage called Lawrence Moore. And we made a film documentary called Can Polar Bears Tread Water? which was about the uh, what was then called the greenhouse effect. Gosh, that was back in, I think it was released in 1988. Uh, so it was a long, long time ago. And then I went on to do a series of, of environmental films, um, uh, Sex, Lemurs and Holes in the Sky, um, <laughs> Top Guns and Toxic Whales. Um, so yes, a series of films exploring um, environmental crisis of various kinds. And very much ahead of the time in the sense that um, I, I think there'd be a massive interest in some of those now. In fact, actually, are some of those still available now? Can people get access? Yes, I think if you YouTube, certainly Cam Polar Bears Tread Water, it's definitely out there. And, and Cam Polar Bears Tread Water, was, I think, was a good title because the polar bear has kind of become the poster bear, the poster animal of, of, of global warming for obvious reasons because of ice melting and things. But yes, they were. And I think looking back on it, it was an interesting moment that the environmental community was coming off the back of a relative success over the ozone that the, the you know the although it may be 
took us a little bit long to detect it. Um, once it was, the Montreal Protocol came into being, and and I think people thought, well, greenhouse effect is next, and I think we maybe underestimated the pushback that you know the fossil fuel companies orchestrated, and we've maybe lost a critical thirty or forty years. And I think it's a it's an interesting area when you look at all of the current pressures on boards and organisations. Uh, this the, the the increasing complexity of the environment in which they are now expected by their stakeholders to operate. Um, I know it's a crude oversimplification, but the end of that Milton Friedman free pass that you make your profit and you pay your taxes. And one of the things that Friedman was very clear about and uh, was that where and how you bound the responsibilities or the accountabilities for organizations, they are different things, mm. that they are not elected polities, but they are increasingly expected to take positions across that piece of ESG, environmental, social and governance. And I think those boundaries are getting blurrier and blurrier uh, across a much, much wider range of, 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 of external complexities. And of course, the kind of big change there is this kind of scope of some of those organizations is so vast, they are in effect kind of countries, uh, coming back to your point, uh, of the governance of them and, and, and elected or otherwise. Um, the response of humanity and the response of people to um, wh whether we're talking about the environment or indeed whether we're talking about the impact of AI and the evolution of how people interact with technology, I guess, is kind of the key thing that I want, was keen to explore in the conversation tonight. Um, I, I remember when we first talked, uh, we, we, we talked a bit about Black Mirror, and, and I mentioned an episode that um, was, struck me because I'd literally just written a very similar article at the same time around life after death. So the ability to engage with people that we know, people that um, uh, we, we, we want to know, of, whether they be famous or family or friends, um, because you can effectively understand their behaviors, the way they speak, the way they interact from their presence on the internet over the last couple of decades. Now, um, I understand that you had an interesting experience in that regard, um, talking to Douglas Adams, except many years after uh, his, his death. Yes, it is. It, it was a very interesting experience. And, and I think you're, you're right, Rob, to sort of look and think about this kind, this thought experiment about the notion of digital persistence in some form or another of our digital self beyond the death of our biological self. I think it seems to me it's almost as profound an issue as we face in terms of what it means to be human. Am I first encounter with that or starting really to think hard about it was when I was involved in a Radio 4 program um, called Unforgettable and the idea that the producer had come up with was for people to be in conversation with the archive of a famous dead person as if you were talking to them in the way we're talking now and uh, so he arrived at my house with a, oh, hours and hours and hours of Douglas Adams interviews and we talked to start with about how we're going to pick our way through. And I felt very much, I didn't know Douglas when he created Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So I don't feel a, a, any kind of legitimacy in discussing that origin story, if you like. But I did feel that I could discuss perspective as the theme that I think runs through his work. So having picked that line, uh, we did a few sound checks. I put the cans on and uh, for two hours, we're sort of doing this, exercise of well you've got that piece of archive and I say something and we can play something back in and at the end of it the producer asked me what I thought and I said well I felt a strange moment of connection there was one in particular where I had an embodied sense and a sense of 
somehow being connected. But I also felt a huge renewed sense of absence of loss. I mean, this was 15, 16 years after Douglas had died. Douglas wasn't there to hug. Douglas was a lovely, big, huggy man. He was enormously good company. He was, you know, liked his red wine and his margarita and his champagne and was just a great, great person to spend lots of time with. Uh, and uh, so that strange paradox of a moment of embodied connection and a renewed sense of absence and loss got me thinking deeply about this. And I went on and did a TEDx talk about it and, and exploring that a little bit further and what it might mean for us to be surrounded potentially by some form of digital ancestor in their hundreds of thousands and maybe millions before maybe too very long. Uh, so yes, it's an area that I think goes to the heart as a thought experiment to just how strange things could be getting for sapiens in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And, and I think you made such an important point, which was um, the impact it had on you. Because I, I find, uh, I, I treasure the tapes that I've got of my dad talking about his days in the RAF uh, and the planes that he flew. Uh, my dad died 25 years ago now. Um, mm. But if I listen to the tape, it brings it all back. And, and, and there's that part kind of delight to listen to it again and part brings it all back and kind of it's it's not a comfortable listen at all hearing his voice and it, it almost feels that this would be massively amplified to have a conversation with him as though he was still there so how, in, in the conversations that you had with people what what was the general reaction was that something that people welcomed as an idea or was it something that people feared um how would the world react that's a good question. I mean, I think that the, it is a good question. I think that the answer is that reactions varied hugely. Um, there was a time where there was quite a famous story about a sort of group of programmers, I think, working between Russia and San Francisco and a lead programmer had died. And one of his colleagues took all of his text messages and ran them through some form of AI and started having a text chat, some kind of a grief bot. And she was finding some solace in it. And so I, I've also done a TEDx talk about grief and bereavement and supporting people in grief and in bereavement and what that means. And I suppose my the essence of my starting point for that is that you start where people are in their grief. So for an example, to anchor that, what I mean by that is if somebody tells me that their mum or dad has died, I would never let my first question be how old are they or how old were they as if I'm going to start to calibrate my sympathy. Uh, it, somebody could be 95 and you know, the child is absolutely devastated. <laughs> An adult probably quite old now if you had a 95 year old parent. And the kind thing is to start where somebody is. And it is not for me to say, oh, well, they had a good innings. That's not my phrase. If they say it, that's fine. So all of that's relevant when we think about this space for thinking if some people were to find solace in it for some time in the grieving process, who would I be to deny that to them? And I think you could see in those early logs of, of, of this woman text chatting, this yearning for it to be more generative than it was for it, it, him to be able to do more than it could. But if you start to push it forward, 
5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years with deep fake technology, with voice technology, with NLP, with wherever GT, whatever version of GTP we're on by then, um, you can begin to see that, that it will get un, more and more uncannily responsive. And this expiration of the relationship between chemical substrate embodied human beings with our capacity to feel pain of all sorts from physical to deep emotional pain and this other ontology this other form of intelligence which doesn't is going to be one of the big stories of the 21st century and and i think i mean there are a lot of lots of conversations that we we have an encounter around the impact of ai or indeed other technologies but we'll focus around kind of ai for the moment um fear in terms of the impact on jobs um optimism in terms of the impact on solving some of the world's biggest challenges we mentioned climate change earlier uh, and there are clearly applications in that space of uh, interpretation of data on a massive scale um in in the work that you've been involved in and, and the uh, the governance or the, or the regulations or the standards that are emerging I guess the interesting area is those grey areas, like the one that we've just talked about, where there are going to be some potential upsides for some people, but there are going to be other parts of society that um, see that very negatively, possibly. What, what do you see happening in terms of those debates and conversations around that? Because, as you say, the pace of ch change in this, this area is, is phenomenal. So, so we know 5, 10, 20 years, um, things will accelerate how are we keeping up with that from a decision-making and guiding process? Yeah, great question. I mean, so my own position is that I am neither, do I think it's all, you know, horrendous, oh my God, AI, you know, those such thing exists, reach for the off switch. I don't think that is a nonsense. It's here, it's part of our complex adaptive systems and it's likely here very much to stay. So, and neither do I, am I some kind of techno-utopian, um, particularly at the end, you know, the singularity end of things, which I, 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 I'm increasingly sceptical about that epistemological framing of what it means to be intelligent. Um, and I think it's time to start doing some reclaiming of that discourse about what it means to be human from a Silicon Valley discourse. So I think the really interesting questions are those, if you want, one's doing the philosophy of it, is the inquiring into the nature of human embodiment uh, and the trying genuinely to inquire into the ontology of data and AI. So let's use Douglas for a second. Douglas Adams used to tell this wonderful parable of a puddle um, which wakes up one morning, looks around at the hole that it's in and thinks to itself, this hole fits me very neatly. In fact, this hole that I'm in fits me so neatly, it must have been made especially for me. And the puddle continues to believe that the hole that it's in was made especially for it as the sun comes up and the puddle evaporates. And that's Douglas's plea for a bit more humility on behalf of sapiens in believing that we're the apogee of cognition, perception and intelligence, as opposed to one deeply, deeply special expression of it. And so the how we find the creative humility to understand maybe return to a better wider understanding of where we sit in the great big scheme of things so how do we both celebrate us and get over ourselves at the same time so i'm the work that i'm interested in is the relationship space and in a governance context 
I ask a kind of slightly different kind of question, not so much how intelligent is it, but what's the work it is doing and how are we in relation to it? Let's give you one example. I would never use the phrase AI accountability. I would always use the phrase accountability for AI. And it may sound like it's splitting hairs, but I think the semantics and the precision with which one names this is incredibly important. Yeah. AI cannot be accountable. We can be accountable for it, but because it doesn't feel pain, it cannot be sanctioned. It is meaningless to talk about punishing, firing an AI. Therefore, it cannot be accountable. And therefore, AI accountability, and I know what some people mean, just be clear and precise. It is accountability for AI. Uh, and so understanding and asking then in a working context, what's the work that it is doing? And to take one area in a, in a protocol that I've written about exploring those relationships, to think about words that you can use to describe what AI is doing without breaking their meaning and words that you go, no, you really can't. So accountability, I don't believe you can, but a word like agency, I think you absolutely can. And indeed I would argue, not only can you, but you should. You need to explore in a governance context what forms of agency this AI now has global algorithmic trading systems, if that isn't a form of agency, then I don't know what is. Now, it isn't agency which a human flesh and blood chemical substrate creature has, but it is nevertheless doing in part what we do, gathering data and information, processing that, and then making that processing manifest in the world. And in that instance, clearly without a human in the loop. Doesn't come back, say, Rob, shall I buy that? Shall I short that? It does it. That's a form of agency. And if we're going to be clear in governance terms, we need to be really gimlet eyed about understanding those kinds of issues. So it's, it's what's the work and what's the relationship space that humans working with that particular AI system in this particular local context has. And that's a much more practical way of getting at things like AI ethics, I think. And, and in that regard, and whether we're talking about government or whether we're talking about a business, uh, or even indeed a, a, a regional or, or from a world perspective, what's, what's the range of, of skills or expertise or perspectives that people are bringing together or should be bringing together? Because as we've talked about, it's not just a technolo technology perspective because kind of that has one particular outlook. Um, maybe there's some philosophical or historic or, or economic. Or what, in, in your experience, what's the right mix uh, to, to get a rounded, holistic view on the impact of society from uh, that, that leads to the decisions that organisations and governments are making in this space? Yeah, well, I, I, I sometimes think governance has... There's the, the three key questions. So you've got the moment at which there is an intent to deploy or implement. We'll talk specifically about an AI system. And there are a range of issues around that deployment, that acquisition, that design, that development. There's then the moment where it is now acting. It's there. It's in the world. It's doing what you intended it to do. Or is it doing what you intended it to do? So I think you've got these three interlocking questions. You've got this question about asking, how's that working for us? Which implies real attention to what that and working is. Critically, who do we mean by us in this context? And then lastly, of whom 
or now increasingly what, are you asking those first two questions? And I think that one of the things that I've been interested in in the, I'm sure like you, the, the, the spaces that around AI is that it's almost like a renaissance issue. It does have the need for your musicians and your philosophers and your linguists and your psychologists and your ethicists, along ethicists, ethicists, alongside data scientists, alongside people who are experts in ML um, or you know whatever kind of network, whatever kind of machine learning you're talking about, they're experts in that. Um, and I remember once you know somebody had bounced up to me at a party and said how fed he up he was you know talking to all these people who you know didn't weren't data scientists because it's only maths and it's only curves and it's only probabilities and i said you know what from right now that, that's the least interesting part of it the part of it is part of our complex adaptive systems and that governance question about having a variety of sense making about how that's working for us because you could say you know for the for the dominant economic system if you'd asked over the last well x number of years whether you do 50 or a few hundred how's that working for us there would have been a lot of people in power very often white men who would have gone great we're having a great time how's that working for us gangbusters thank you very much but if you'd asked a wider set of people how's that working they might have gone from marginalized groups right way through to the system of the planet actually not so well there are maybe some issues about the lens with which you're bringing in you're deciding what working means so i think that you know the right approach is clearly a variety of different kind of cognitive perspectives, different groups of people, people who might be harmed if you're thinking that this is a high risk system, the way the EU has just created this designation, which I'm sure will be part of our lives for many years to come. HRAIS, high risk AI systems, I think is what they started to describe when they started to trail the regulatory frameworks they're looking at. So you might want those people to be involved in the system. I mean, it is shameful to create facial recognition technologies that don't recognize black faces. And it would not have happened if people, black people have been in the room, just wouldn't have happened. You, you, you just, it, it, it couldn't have been done. So think about a much wider prismatic set of society that you're asking in, in the design phase. And then critically in the, the governance, when you're saying, well, how's that working? Is it working the way we intended it to work? Are, are there harms that we hadn't foreseen? And how, from a governance perspective, it seems to be the most ethical thing you can do at that stage is to have your sensory motors, to borrow a phrase from phenomenology, to have the ways in which you are actively trying to find out how that's, work, how that's working from as wide a group of stakeholders. That's an ethical thing to do. That's an ethical way to behave as opposed to believing you're going to find some ethical mother load, which we've been at as a species for you know, thousands of years, that we're suddenly going to be able to determine uh, how that's the form of ethics. It only in, in the manifestation and what is actually out there in the world, live for real, then your governance responsibility really kicks in. And, and I think in a sense, if I go back to the very start of how I started looking at digital responsibility, it probably did start with me reading books like Ready Player One, The Circle, watching Black Mirror, and to try and understand people's reaction, people's emotions, how they felt about some of the scenarios that were then presented, irrespective of whether it was auto-sensing kind of disease in somebody, and therefore how do you actually break that to them in an appropriate way uh, if that's something that's automatically detected and kind of uh, flashed, flashes up on the system, whatever the system is. Um, 
are we doing okay? Do we need to do something different? How How is the world doing at the moment in your mind in regard to some of these challenges? Well, I suppose here, I mean, the older I get, that there's a deeply pragmatic sense that we will always be trying to deal with the struggle around technologies which we hope will maximise the constructive aspects of human nature. And we try and minimise the destructive. But the destructive is always going to be there. It will always be there. And therefore, these questions that we were talking about just a little while ago about trying to understand the nature of human embodiment and sense-making and the ontology of data and AI, what it is and the relationship, you have to think about power. You have to think about agency. You have to think about those questions. And I think the answer is it's, you know, it will be, it will be something that, you know, when you and I aren't working anymore, people will still be at trying to work out and there will be some things where we're, we're showing ourselves at our most constructive and others at our most destructive. And it, it's ever thus and will ever be thus. Um, I think you make an interesting point because um, I, I've talked in the past about um, those of us our age will perhaps simply go, well, okay, so the world has changed and, and we will retire or do something different. Those, my kids, for example, teenage kind of years, will go into a world where maybe academia gives them a different set of skills and a different set of capabilities, or indeed they will get them themselves through their interactions with their mobile devices and kind of different media and creation, etc. But it's those in the middle of their career, they're in their 30s maybe, who kind of face the needing to reinvent themselves, needing to evolve in the second part of their career that may actually be impacted more than those either side for the reasons that we've just talked about. What, 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 what would excite you most at the moment in terms of some of the things that you're seeing? So we often talk too much perhaps about the fear of AI or the dystopian outcomes that it, it generates. But as we said at various points in the conversation, there are some really positive things that it can address, can mitigate, can solve. Uh, which of those would you highlight as standing out for you from a personal point of view? I think from a personal point of view, the one that would interest me most is you, you alluded to Ready Player One. Um, and I think one of the most interesting areas is going to be what does start to happen with data landscapes and data topographies. And I use those, those, those two words very specifically. And I think that back to some of the biggest challenges we face and in terms of humans understanding better and better, seeing better and better complexity and relationality, that there are older epistemologies and wisdom systems, indigenous people's knowledge and things, which have always seen a much wider set of relationships than maybe we've, we've, we've some, some philosophical, philosophical strands have lost sight of. So maybe AI will start to help us in those data landscapes to be with more of that relationality and complexity in haptic spaces where you go, well, if you do this, then this is what's going to happen for your great, great grandchildren, your ancestors. We can start to have a more embodied sense of it. And if AI could help us to do that, seeing that complexity, being with that complexity, not trying to run away from it, put your fingers in your ears and hope it'll go away, build a wall, but actually helps us to be with that complexity. Um, I think that could be an enormous important. And I would hope it would be navigating those data spaces, which have some very ancient echoes, by the way. I and mean, that's something that fascinates me is how some of the echoes about the way 
I was immensely privileged last week to talk to somebody who's the head of, well, one of the leaders from the Lakota Nation in North America. And we were talking about some of these issues about groups of people who've never lost sight of the puddle, if you like, have never lost sight of what it means for humans to be part of a much, much wider chain of relationships. But if AI can help us to see those things, that will be wonderful. And, and it would help us to do both the celebrators that are most constructive, try and help us to mitigate the destructive, but that joy and creativity in seeing how we sit in those spaces, I think could be a, you know, a glorious thing as well yeah. as going out and feel the wind on your cheeks and, you know, the, the, the sand under your toes as, you know, the waves break around your ankles. Let's not lose sight of those things too. And, and in a sense, of course, brilliantly, um, uh, brilliantly the follow-up to last chance to see in terms of giving an eternal chance to see those experiences, those languages, those those things that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise have had the opportunity to be doing, making it real for people. Um, That's a lovely phrase, Rob. The eternal chance to see—that's a beautiful. Well, there's a book. I always, I think it's always a great sign of a great conversation when at least one good book title emerges. So, kudos to you for for coming up with that. <laughs> the eternal chance to see is a is a lovely, lovely title for a book. We just need to write it now. <laughs> so, um, so we emerge out of. Well, I say we emerge. Hopefully, we're beginning to emerge out of uh, the pandemic and, and a difficult time for everyone around the world. Um, I, I guess to, to finish on, what, what should we be doing differently over the next year um, to help kind of nudge these things in the right direction? What, what would your, if you've got an ask for those people who are listening now, what would you ask them to consider and think about differently in this regard? The, one of the things I did in, in uh, lockdown was register a domain name, which I'm now working with a foundation in South Africa to, which was Be A Good Ancestor. And I think if I was going to think of one big narrative thing, how can we create the, a narrative that's powerful enough to go up against some of the, the most destructive forces that we face, the builder walls, the blame other people, recidivist nationalism, a global movement, literally hashtag be a better ancestor, whether that's planting trees in my kid's playground, whether that's wanting to hold Larry Fink at BlackRock, genuinely to account for saying I'm going to change the way my trillions of dollars under management are going to operate. You could be a good ancestor, be a better ancestor, back to we were talking about digital ancestors, yeah. be a better ancestor by sweeping outside your front door or by the, any number of things. How do we create a movement, stories that we can all believe in that are strong enough to help to shape patterns of behavior where we stop doing certain things and start doing others so that would be my big hope and i hope to be involved in that whole not to own it to culturally appropriate it, anything just hashtag be a better ancestor hashtag be a good ancestor that's that i think encourages systemic long-term wider relational thinking step outside the narcissism of so much of our thinking into reminding ourselves of what it means to think longer term. Robbie, that's brilliant and uh, such a positive kind of thing to finish the conversation on uh, alongside the book that we've just invented as well. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Many thanks. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Terrific stuff. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Cheers.